This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio and iTunes. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a senior reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, senior editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Eugenia Cheng discusses her new mathematics book, How to Bake Pie, an edible exploration of the mathematics of mathematics. Then PW bookselling editor Judith Rosen explores the hot new trend of coloring books for adults. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list powered by Nielsen Bookscan. And um, I think jump right into nonfiction. Yeah, please go right ahead. So we've got at number one, uh, selling over 40,000 copies in Whoa. its first week, The Wright Brothers by... Uh, historian biographer david mccullough uh this one we uh uh i think we we were one of the first out with this review and uh you know kind of uh did a lot of stuff in the magazine about it mm-hmm. on uh, tip sheet and it's at uh, number one the first week out so um it's a history of as you can imagine the wright brothers which was just in dc a couple of weeks ago and i actually saw the Kitty Hawk, the actual wow. Kitty Hawk. It was kind of cool. It was kind of great to see that right, right up front. At number two, Clinton Cash, the untold story of how and why foreign governments and businesses help make Bill and Hillary rich. This is by Peter Schweitzer. He's the uh, author of what was a New York Times bestselling book, Extortion, and the other one, Throw Them All Out. In uh, this one, um, reading from copy here, we don't have a review of this just yet. It says, in 2000, Bill and Hillary Clinton owed millions of dollars in legal debt. Since then, they've earned over $130 million. Where did the money come from? And this book sets out to tell us where that came from. Uh, number five, American Wife, a memoir of love, war, faith, and renewal by Taylor Kyle. Uh, this is the widow. She's the widow of right. uh, Chris Kyle, uh, author of The American Sniper. So not surprisingly, this is at number five. Yeah. Um, and at number four, I'm sorry, number seven, we have the book of Joan, Tales and Mirth, Mischief and Manipulation. This is about Joan Rivers, written by her daughter, Melissa Rivers. So, um, And so that's uh, uh, right up there, number seven. Finally, number nine, another one by Willie Nelson. It's a long story, my life. He's writing this with author David Ritz. And we say, picking up where he left off in 2012's Roll Me Up and Smoke Me When I Die, Nelson shares intimate and entertaining details of his life behind his guitar, the ups and downs of his marriages, his infamous encounter with the IRS, and his deep love of making music. Uh, We say Nelson offers a warm, friendly, and deeply reflective glimpse behind the making of of most of his albums, as well as behind-the-scenes looks at some of his best-known hits. And that's what we have. That's all top 10. So a lot of new books on the top 10. Yeah. Exciting times. Well, over here in fiction, we have a new number one, which is 14th Deadly Sin by James Patterson. It's the 14th book in his Women's Murder Club. This is sort of an interesting premise for the series. Um, The the 
so-called club has four members, all women. Uh, one is a homicide detective in San Francisco. One is a reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle. One is the chief medical examiner for San Francisco. And one is mm. a San Francisco DA. So they all see different aspects of crimes as they're committed, sometimes work together, sometimes perhaps are at odds. Right. And uh, in the 14th book, uh, there's a, a new terror sweeping the streets of San Francisco, a gang dressed as cops. Mm. And so the main character, who's the policewoman, has to figure out, are they real cops? Are they impersonating the police? What's really going on? So that's at number one. Uh, as usual, Patterson just uh, you know completely blows everybody else out of the water. He sold over 60,000 copies. Wow. And uh, to give you some perspective, at number two, which is Paula Hawkins' is The Girl on the Train, we uh, talked about a while ago. It's been on the list 17 weeks still doing very well but that's 37,000 copies mm. uh, so Patterson just sort of casually doubled right exactly <laughs> well, it was already a good week of sales for the second book yeah uh, you know usually 30,000 copies would be uh, very impressive and there's some sort of mega bestsellers who just right. you know just blow it out ev- everybody else's numbers pale in comparison so uh, James Patterson's 14th Deadly Sin is at number one and going down a little bit we have A God in Ruins by Kate Atkinson uh, we gave this a starred review it's a combination present day and historical mm-hmm. novel uh, about a man who is a pilot in World War II uh, with the RAF, the Royal Air Force in England. Uh, fewer than half of the RAF pilots survived the war, but he uh, beat the odds and now uh, is living in England and trying to figure out uh, sort of what's what's going on with his life in, in this, the post-war days. Uh, and post-war England had, was going through very, very hard times, mm-hmm. uh, you know, rationing and uh, a lot of stress and psychological stress, right. particularly for veterans. Uh, and so he has difficult relationships that he struggles with. And uh, interestingly, this is not precisely a sequel to Life After Life, which was Atkinson's previous novel, uh, but he is the younger brother of the protagonist in that book. So there are some connections there mm. for people who've read them both. And we say that Atkinson isn't just telling a story, she's deconstructing and taking apart the notion of how we believe stories are told. And she makes us feel the power of storytelling, not as an intellectual conceit, but as a punch in the gut. Mm. So it sounds very powerful. And yeah. uh, that's on the list at number nine. And just below that, uh, number 10, uh, Rock with Wings by Anne Hillerman. Uh, she is continuing the work of her father, Grandmaster Tony Hillerman, who passed away in 2008. And uh, we say she's really doing a very able job of continuing his mm. work, writing mysteries featuring Navajo cops. And uh, we say that she uses the Southwestern setting as effectively as her late father did in this particular uh, double mystery. Right. So uh, that's that's on there. And finally, just uh, going a little bit further down at number 18 is Day Shift by Charlene Harris. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, she was most famous for the Suki Stackhouse right. books, Southern Vampire Mysteries. This is her new series. Uh, it's the, the second one featuring mid, after Midnight Crossroad. Uh, and it's set in a tiny little town called Midnight, Texas, where everyone's a little bit unusual. And uh, so there's a, a psychic, uh, the eccentric operator of a pet cemetery whose ward is a young boy who grows supernaturally quickly. Uh, and then a multinational corporation suddenly shows up in this tiny town 
and reopens an abandoned hotel. And we all know that can uh, always that can, uh, yes, go, can go badly. Then. Right. And uh, we say Harris continues to open up her setting, layering in more secrets as well as revealing some answers. And in a nod to her fans, she uh, the reviewer says she drops the S-bomb, which is Suki Stackhouse, and links this series with the Southern Vampire Mysteries. So uh, I guess she uh, she knows where her fans right, are exactly. and how to keep them happy. So uh, that's at number 18 on the fiction list. And uh, that's that's pretty much what we've got over here. Yeah, good showing. Yeah, and uh, you know, clearly the big summer books continuing to trickle in, and uh, we'll see more of those in the the weeks ahead. Right. I'm Rose Fox, and I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. And next up, the very delightful and animated Eugenia Cheng tells us how she combines mathematics and concepts of cooking to bring math to the legions. We'll be right back. I'm Kabir Segel, author of Coint, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Eugenia Chang on the line. Her new book is How to Bake Pie. Hi, Eugenia. So glad you could join us. Hi. Thanks for having me. So how did you come up with this wonderful conceit as as a math cookbook is math book or math book is cookbook? Well... I love math and I love food. And unfortunately, most people seem to love food more than they love math. (laughs) And it makes me a bit sad that so many people don't like math because I think that it's fun and exciting. So it makes me sad that it's misunderstood and it's thought of as being boring and irrelevant. And it all started when I found that I had a way of explaining quite high-level math to my university-level students using food. And not only did it help them understand the concepts better, it also made it fun and memorable and gave them a way to think of math differently from the way that they'd ever thought about it before. So gradually I started using more and more different and admittedly slightly crazy food experiments to demonstrate math concepts. And then the whole thing came together and I thought, well, I'd like to show this to more people than just my students. And so then it turned into a book. So uh, give us an example of one of your mathematical recipes. One of my mathematical recipes is for gluten-free brownies. And it's explaining the fact that, well, in normal life, there are quite a few people now who don't eat gluten, either because they're allergic to it or because they simply want to avoid it. I avoid eating gluten because, you know, it makes me look pregnant. (laughs) (laughs) And so it's it's a mathematical principle as well, that if you understand the principle of how something works, then you might be able to go to a different world where things work slightly differently. Maybe you don't have some of the tools that you had in your previous world, and you can still do something similar, like make brownies, even though you don't have access to wheat anymore. Okay, so uh, is it an actual recipe that we could bake from? It is, yes. Every chapter of my book starts with a recipe, which is a recipe that I have mostly made up myself and one of the things that I cook myself quite often. But it's also something that introduces the mathematical concept of that particular chapter. So, for example, there's also a chapter about generalization, which starts with a recipe generalizing a a normal cake to a slightly more uh, strange cake to cater for people's food habits, let's say, because a lot of people have interesting food habits these days. Um, so 
we were wondering what the publishing process was like for this, because usually math books and cookbooks are, are fairly far apart. Um, did you get someone testing your recipes? Did you get people checking your theorems? I There were various... There were various stages, it's true. And I'm not sure if there was a formal recipe testing process. Certainly various people have tested my recipes. And I had some of my lovely PhD students uh, check the mathematical parts of it. And in fact, I've been teaching the whole book to my students at the School of the Art Institute this semester. Uh, so they were art students and they were baking the recipes. They would turn up to class and say, I tried this recipe, it was great. So that was fun. So... You know, you had mentioned about you had mentioned that people maybe find math uh, not relevant or uh, boring, but but I think many people find it just complex, and uh, it, and so give us an example, if you could, another way of how you might present a math equation or a math problem through through food or anyhow else. Well, the first part of my book is explaining what I believe math really is, because part of the misunderstanding around math is that often people think it's just about numbers and equations, and really at a higher level, it's about how to think logically. It's not just about solving equations and solving uh, slightly pointless word problems. And my aunt was telling me a story the other day about how she remembers beating her head against a brick wall trying to solve some problem involving chickens and rabbits and a cage and saying, if you have this many feet, how many chickens and how many rabbits must there be? <laughs> Which is so pointless. I mean, when would you ever try to figure out how many chickens... First of all, when would you ever have chickens and rabbits in a, a cage together? <laughs> right, right. Secondly, why would you ever try and count them by counting the feet? And that's the kind of thing that makes math seem particularly ridiculous and pointless right, right. whereas what I show in my book is different thought processes that are involved in mathematics and so the book is arranged not according to subjects exactly but by thought processes so there's a chapter on abstraction because the first principle of mathematics is that you want to study everything using logic and the thing is that nothing in the world behaves logically I don't, you don't, I dare say. Nobody behaves logically. Things don't behave logically. My computer doesn't behave logically. It's just been crashing for no particular reason all morning. And so to do mathematics, you have to move away from the real world and go into a world of ideas. And that's what I think can make it seem complicated because the world of ideas isn't something you can get your hands on. You just have to think about it inside your head. And that's difficult because you can't watch anyone do it either. If you watch me thinking inside my head, nothing will happen. <laughs> and so that's why I use recipes to develop the ideas and give people a way of thinking about the ideas so that there's a way into this strange abstract world, which is on the one hand, not so much to do with real life. But on the other hand, the idea is it's supposed to be easier. I mean, this is the really tragic thing about the way math is taught. Math is supposed to be easier because it's the only place where you don't have to use guesswork, intuition, uh, yelling, aggression, any of those things. You just use sheer logic and everything behaves exactly the way it's supposed to. And somehow it turns into this world which is extremely complicated. And I think that's a shame. When so in our starred review of your book, we, we say that you often depart from mathematical theory to highlight the pragmatic values of logic and rationality as employed by mathematicians in everyday life. Uh, would you agree with this? And if so, talk to us about it. 
Wow. Well, I was greatly inspired by my piano teacher who, who always taught by telling stories. And the stories were usually nothing to do with playing the piano whatsoever, but had a kind of moral, a bit like an Aesop's fable. I always loved Aesop's fables when I was little. And so I try to tell a lot of stories that, that people can relate to because math is, if it's about some shapes or some numbers or, or some abstract things, you can't really relate to it emotionally. Whereas if you tell a story, I hope that people can relate to it emotionally and then see the point of the thought process. For example, there's a story about pickpocketing and putpocketing, where if you imagine you have a $20 bill in your pocket and then someone steals it without you noticing. And then somebody else, bizarrely, puts a $20 bill in your pocket without you noticing. And at this point, you believe you have a $20 bill in your pocket. And you're right, but the reason that you know it is wrong, because you don't know the bizarre, complicated train of events that has happened. And math is more about understanding why something is true than just seeing the, the, the answer in the end. And if you don't understand the correct reasoning for why it's true, then you haven't really got the math part right. So um, one of the things that I loved when I was a, a math tutor many, many years ago, I was working with, with teenage girls, uh, and, and they would come in with this idea that math was hard, and particularly that math was hard for teenage girls. Like These were oh, kids who'd been very bright and had no trouble, mm-hmm. and then they sort of hit puberty, and they felt like their math skills leaked out their ears. Um, and I just loved sort of showing up and being like, no, you can like be a cool chick who loves math. Um, cooking is one of those things that's seen as very gendered in this culture. Um, is that partly a way of reaching women who might think that math is out of reach at the same time that they can have or double a recipe or you know figure out how to split something among five people and make sure everyone gets fed? I didn't specifically think about cooking in order to reach towards women. I do think about those gender issues a lot, of course, because I am a woman and I am a mathematician and it is a very, very heavily male-dominated subject. And there are interesting studies about where, where it is that those gender differences start and why people hit the particular walls that they hit. And one thing I find interesting is that uh, I've taught for many years in different institutions. And now that I'm teaching at the School of the Art Institute, it's the first time that I've had a class that's been predominantly female. And that has been, that has been very interesting to me. And as for, the, as for the cooking thing, I want to stress that it's not just about doubling recipes or splitting things up. It's about the principle that you can take a bunch of ingredients in the kitchen and just fiddle around and do what you want with them. And that's what, when cooking becomes really fun, I think, is when you start making up your own recipes rather than just following someone else's recipe. It's good to start by following someone's recipe, but if you understand the principle behind it, then you can invent things for yourself and you can invent things that may or may not be delicious. And it doesn't really matter if, if you're just cooking for yourself. Well, if it's not delicious, you try again and you make something more delicious. And the same is actually true of higher-level math. And this is the secret that doesn't get told to children in high school, which is that in math, you just also take some ingredients and you see what you can create and see how delicious it's going to be at the end. And that's how research works. And it's really a shame that high school math is so different from research math. Research math is so much fun where you just build things and see what happens. High school math isn't like that at all. And so I've decided that it would be nice to show people the really fun, creative part instead of having to pass millions of exams and get to grad school before you get to see it. 
So you've obviously taught a lot of different types of students. Who's the audience for this book? Who is it aimed at? The audience for this book is uh, people who perhaps fell off the math train at some point or for, for whatever reason didn't become a mathematician, either because they were just better at something else or because they got stuck and hit some kind of ceiling. Most people hit a math ceiling at some point and at that point they suddenly discover that they they can't get beyond some particular thing and they get stuck and then they go off in a different direction but perhaps later in life they become curious about what it's really about and I've really noticed a change in the last 10 years or so 10 years or so ago I would tell people I'm a mathematician and everyone would go ooh I can't do math and nowadays people are much more likely to say oh I really wish I understood math more. Mm. And so that's one of the reasons I thought it was a really good time to write this book, because I keep meeting people who are really curious about it. And because I'm quite a social person, I love meeting people and talking to people about things. I've had a lot of time talking to non-mathematicians, kind of practicing talking about mathematics to people who aren't mathematicians. And that's where all the ideas for this book came from. I just basically wrote down the conversations that I've been having with people explaining what the work is that I do in a way that seemed to make uh, make sense to them. Well, that, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, for me, I, I hit the math wall in calculus. Um, mm -hmm. I was like, you know, super arithmetic star. And then as soon as I got to the more abstract stuff, I, I flunked it three times. Um, and uh, it, that, that was that was pretty tough. And uh, I'd love to use a, a book like this to, you know, maybe get myself back on track. That sounds like it would be a lot of fun. But it sounds like it's also just as applicable to someone who hit, uh, you know, factoring equations and went, nah. -uh. Right. And so the, the art students I've been teaching at the School of the Art Institute, they're all art students. And I began by asking them all what they thought of math previously. And a lot of them came up to me and said that they failed high school math. Mm. and that they were worried that they wouldn't be able to take this class. But I assured them that that was fine, that, that <laughs> they didn't need to be able to do anything. This, you don't have to be able to do anything to read this book. You just need to be curious about it. And I do honestly believe that math is like music and art, something that you can appreciate even if you can't do it. And it would be a shame if the only people allowed to listen to music were people who could play instruments. That would be absurd. <laughs> And so I, I think that for math as well, it shouldn't be closed off to people who can't do it. I'm not expecting people to read this book and suddenly be able to go off and do a PhD in math. But right. if it means that people can appreciate the kinds of thought processes, logical thought processes, then, then I'm happy. Tell us a little bit about uh, teaching those art students. How did you end up at the Art Institute? It was a wonderful series of uh, spontaneous coincidences in a way. The, they were looking for somebody to cover a math class for someone's maternity leave. And I saw this email that came around to the University of Chicago where I was teaching at the time. And I thought, this sounds fantastic. And I wrote back and it turned out that the, uh, the professor who runs the science program there, Catherine Schaefer, she knew a, a friend of mine who's a musician. They'd met at the South Pole. I like that story because it's so implausible that people should know each other from the South Pole, but they'd both been doing physics research there. And she looked at my CV and said, well, uh, how about being a scientist in residence? Because the scientist in residence program there is all about uh, bridging the gap between 
science and arts, bridging the gap that is in fact a bit contrived. I mean, at extremes, yes, art is very far away from science, but somewhere in the middle, they they meet a lot more than one might expect. And the president of the School of the Art Institute is Professor Walter Massey, who is a physicist. And so they they have wonderful programs to bring science to art students because they believe, I think correctly, that just because you're an art student doesn't mean that that you shouldn't have to understand some aspects of science. And so I devised a course which is called The Elegance of Abstraction. And it's about abstract thought, which is what my book is about. And so we we did the book from start to finish during the course of the semester. And the students were absolutely, they were brilliant. They were fascinated by a different way of thinking. And because they're art students, nobody was going to go and use math specifically it's not like teaching people who are going to be engineers or accountants or or math teachers or work in finance or something they were just interested in learning a particular way of thinking and a lot of them ended up incorporating it in their art projects or just saying to me that it seemed much more relevant to their daily lives than any of the math they'd ever done before because it's all about how to think logically through situations and that's helpful to everything in life we're going to take a quick break but don't go away Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Eugenia Cheng, who's the author of How to Bake Pie, an edible exploration of the mathematics of mathematics. So uh, I bet a lot of people are going to be confounded when they see that subtitle. Can you uh, explain the mathematics of mathematics? Yes, that's what I like to think of as the explanation of category theory. Category theory is my field of research, which is a very new relatively new for mathematics field of research. It's about 50 years old. And people often say to me, how on earth can you do research in mathematics? You can't just come up with a new number. Or they say, hasn't all of mathematics been understood? And so I really wanted to explain why there's always more mathematics that can be done. And in particular, what this very new branch of mathematics is. And it is the mathematics of mathematics. And in order to understand that, you first have to understand what mathematics is really. It's not about numbers. It's about logically thinking through logical things. And there are various ways that mathematics does that. It draws similarities. It draws analogies, makes analogies between different situations, basically because we're all really lazy. And so if we want to, if we find ourselves doing similar things over and over again, we go, wait, I don't want to do this over and over again. I want to to make a connection between all these different things so that I can somehow do them all at once. And so you do things like, it's like studying a building. You see, I'm already making an analogy. It's like <laughs> studying buildings where if you, if you t- strip away the wallpaper and the paint and take the windows out and you just look at the structure of the building, more, a lot more buildings will turn out to be the same if you just look at the structural parts as opposed to the bits that have been painted on top. And that's what mathematics does. It looks for the structure inside situations in the world to see what's holding them up. So the mathematics of mathematics is one step further than that. It takes mathematical situations and it 
draws similarities between those mathematical situations so that mathematicians can be more lazy or perhaps we should say more efficient in their studies. <laughs> so uh, talk to us a little bit more about the connection between art and music and, and math. Um, when we called you, you said you were going to get a music stand to put your microphone on. So clearly oh, yeah. you're, you're surrounded by <laughs> musical instruments and equipment right now. Yeah, that's right. I'm actually in my piano studio and music stands, are, I've discovered, are very handy as microphone stands as well because they, have, they can be placed at different angles and go up and down. Of course, that's not the connection that, that you were really talking about <laughs> but between mouth and music. No, um, give, give us a sense. I mean, you, you say you're in a piano studio. Obviously, you, you also uh, you know, have this interest in art because you were immediately captivated by the idea of being at the Art Institute. So, so where, where is that connection between math and art, between math and music? The, the math that I do is very creative, it, and it feels a lot like an art to me because... I'm not trying to solve particular problems. There are some mathematicians who just see a problem like Fermat's last theorem, and a lot of mathematicians spent hundreds of years between them trying to solve that particular problem. But the work I do is more about creating things. So you take some, some starting point, and then you create some new mathematical world in order to see what will happen there. And you don't really know what's going to happen there, but you just kind of wander off into it and see what's there. It's like the difference between going out and looking for the Loch Ness Monster because someone's told you the Loch Ness Monster is there as opposed to wandering around, hacking your way through a jungle to see what creatures are hidden inside it. And the work I do is more about building things up to see what kinds of structures you can make. And for me, that it does feel very creative. And music for me well the, the link between math and music is complicated because sometimes for me it feels like the exact opposite and I play I play the piano and I perform a lot and playing the piano often feels like I'm balancing myself out with the exact opposite extreme from music but on the other hand there are some pieces of music that feel a lot like doing math and in particular Bach when I play Bach I feel like all my brain cells are lining up mm -hmm. in exactly the right way I need to do mathematics and sometimes if my brain won't calm down enough to do mathematics I'll sit down and play Bach for a while and I'll feel yeah. like it's all calming down and all lining up ready for me to do it so what came first uh for you uh math or music oh uh interesting question they both came very very early and I started learning the violin when I was three, and I started playing the piano when I was four. And around about the same time, it was my mother who got me really interested in mathematical ideas. And it's really thanks to her, it must be thanks to her that I got so interested in math, because honestly, the stuff we did at school was so boring. I'm very sympathetic to everyone who thinks math is boring, because I think that school math is often extremely boring. <laughs> but fortunately, my mother showed me some things that made me believe and well, no, I was completely convinced that there was something more beautiful waiting for me if I just stuck out these boring math lessons for long enough. Well, I think in the same ways, um, uh, school English classes can be boring. The way uh, texts are introduced to students and when they're introduced to them uh, as, as assignments rather than 
pure enjoyment, or at least it was when mm-hmm. I was growing up. Mm-hmm. So, uh, if I'm asked, what was your what was your mother like? What what? How did she get you into uh, math? Was she herself a mathematician? My mother is mathematical. She's uh, she has degrees in mathematics and she um, worked in a mathematical field and she just showed me things that were really fun and I remember that one of the first things she told me when I was really young was how you can quickly add up all the numbers from 1 to 10 or 1 to 100 and you imagine that you've lined up all the numbers from 1 to 100 in a row and then you line them all up backwards from 100 to 1 underneath the ones from 1 to 100 so they're all in pairs and then you note that all the pairs add up to the same thing And this is a very famous uh, proof of how you add up all the numbers from one to something. And I remember I thought this was amazing. (laughs) And I was very, I was quite young when she showed me this. And it's, it's not a difficult concept if you write it all down and, and watch it happening. And it's that kind of thing that made me know those patterns and those clever things. It was so satisfying and uh, I loved it. And it seems like with music, too, just looking at the staff of notes, that, that almost seems mathematical. And knowing that chord progressions are are kind of maybe logical or sound logical to our ears, maybe? Well, I like the fact that some of it is logical and some of it isn't. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's what math is about. It's not about trying to make the whole world logical because the whole world isn't logical. And that's what makes it interesting. Because if the whole world were logical, then there, there wouldn't really be any poetry or art or excitement if it was all logical. We could just predict everything that was going to happen all the time. And the same is true for me in music, that I like understanding which parts are mathematical and then I love the fact that there's always something you can't explain. You, know, you can try and explain why this particular piece of music makes me cry. But at, at a certain point, you won't be able to do it anymore just by using chord progressions and analysis. It just does make me cry. And I love the fact that, that there is some part that you can explain and some part that you can't explain. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what math does as well in life. Math takes the parts of life that you can explain logically and it explains them. But that's never going to be all of life. And there's always going to be some more out there that it can't explain. I think it's important to remember that because mathematicians can be a bit prone to thinking that math is the whole of life. And it really isn't. So you've got some instructional videos on YouTube called The Mathsters and the Catsters. Tell us a little mm-hmm. bit about those. Oh uh, Well, I always had this dream when I was uh, young, <laughs> let's say, that I I wanted to make a textbook that had a DVD at the back, just like language books have have audios so that you can listen to people talking. Because the abstract math I do, first of all, it's very fluid. You need to see diagrams growing. When if you just see the whole diagram on the page, you can't see which bit. It's a bit like trying to learn Chinese from a book because the order in which you draw the, the the words, the stroke order really matters. And it's the same with the diagrams in my abstract mathematics. It really matters which way they're going and flowing and the way things flow around them. Plus, I always feel like books are so dry and they don't give you the human, the human element of how I feel about mathematics. And it, I really have found when I'm teaching that if I say how I feel about it, then it gives everyone an emotional link to something that's otherwise very dry and difficult to difficult to grasp hold of. So I had this dream anyway of including a DVD with a textbook. But in those days, it was really expensive to even dream of making, making a video on a DVD. And then time passed a bit and suddenly 
there were video cameras everywhere and YouTube got invented. <laughs> and so, um, so you, can, you can place that in the history of time. And one day at the end of a conference dinner, we were all a bit merry and we were all, uh, someone was saying that they'd been learning the harmonica from YouTube. And I just thought, hey, we could teach category theory on YouTube. And so we uh, broke into someone's office <laughs> and, because we knew, we knew he had a webcam and because none of us owned webcams at the time, we just knew this one guy had a webcam. So we broke into his, we did ask him first, but we broke into his office, stole his webcam and just pointed it at the chalkboard. And I made my first, my first video, which was about category theory. It was graduate level mathematics. And I particularly wanted to do that because there aren't many courses. Hmm. At the time, there weren't many courses in it. So everyone was learning it out of books and kind of slightly missing the point of the spirit of it. They could get all the technical details, but they somehow missed the spirit. And I wanted to convey the spirit. So I, we watched, well, the first thing we did actually was we watched a lot of math videos on YouTube first and they were so boring. <laughs> they were <laughs> unbelievably, everybody talked in a monotone like this. And so I thought, okay, I have to be, whatever I do, I'm not going to talk in a monotone. And so... I made a big effort to be extremely lively. And so this first video, it's of great historical interest for me. The, the video quality is terrible because it's just this cheap webcam and it's called Monads One and it's my first ever video. And it got, it was so popular. We made about 70 of those with, uh, this was with Simon Willerton, who's another mathematician at the University of Sheffield in England. And the key for us was not to do it in a sensible order. I don't like doing things in a sensible order in general. I like doing whatever I like doing. And I thought, well, I'll just do what, I'll just teach whatever I feel like teaching at any given moment. And overall, eventually, it'll make a coherent whole. So we started right in the middle and we just jumped around. And eventually, after 70 videos, there was a coherent set of videos. And then I kind of thought, well, I would like to do this for high school students because I think that when I was at high school, I was very lucky because I got to go to the local university and watch some higher level math happening there. And not many, not everyone gets to do that. And so I thought, well, if I put this on YouTube, then everybody will get to see some of the more exciting higher level math. And maybe it'll get people more interested because not, not all schools have the, uh, the resources to stretch people in math because they have to concentrate on getting people through who are, who might fail but i thought well with youtube now everybody can have access to something more interesting than the stuff that's maybe boring them at school so that's how that's how that started so that was aimed at high school students who are and and beginning university students who are just bridging that gap between high school math and high level math and then it just started branching out from there and then i did more things with food to capture the hilarious food experiments that I'd been doing because that seemed to go particularly well on video as well because you can't really do food experiments as, as audio or in a book. <laughs> Except that I've just done the book. It goes with the, the, the book explains all those things, but it's, it's nice for videos because then you can kind of throw food around and have fun. Well, when you talk about adding the, the human element, uh, I just I love the animated way that you talk about it and I'm sure that that's all in your book as well. 
Well, I'm very happy to say that people who've been reading it already have said to me, it really sounds like me talking. And my friends have been saying this because they know how I talk. They say, it really, it really feels exactly like having a chat with me, they said. They can hear my voice. And I tried to write it as if I was having a chat with someone because I don't want it to be one of those math books where uh, you get kind of stuck and then you put it down because you're stuck. And I know that I've had that experience with with plenty of math books and if I've had that experience with math books everyone must have had had as well and I want it to be a book that that you really can get to the end of and where it doesn't feel like an effort and uh, so far I've had people who are really not mathematicians at all telling me that they they just kept turning the pages and also they kept laughing out loud and disturbing people. (laughs) Well, we've been talking with Eugenia Chang, and you can find her book, How to Bake Pie, in stores right now. Maybe read a few pages while you're there and uh, giggle to yourself. Eugenia, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW bookselling editor Judith Rosen talks about adults who color inside the lines, so stay tuned. I am Mario Marazziti, author of 13 Ways of Looking at the Death Penalty, and you are listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. Today, PW bookselling editor Judith Rosen is here to tell us all about coloring books for grown-ups. Hi, Judith. Hi, Rose. What's the story with these coloring books? You know, obviously, people tend to think it's a kid thing, but maybe that's not so true anymore. Um, actually, it's not. And as many things do, the trend started in France. Um, it started with uh, a coloring book series, uh, which translates into art therapy in English. And um, coloring books were marked anti-stress. and. Uh-huh. Um, Companies played up the fact that they would alleviate your stress. In fact, um, a lot of people there started turning to coloring for the same reasons that people took up knitting a few years ago. Uh, Getting away from your computer screen, doing something tactile, and doing something where it's okay to make mistakes sometimes. So people aren't always coloring inside the lines? No, you don't have to. And... um, and you don't have to always use crayons. There's beautiful <laughs> uh, colored pencils and fancy markers. You can go as fancy or as plain as you like. Um, and I think another piece of this is uh, as people coloring with their kids and just realizing it's fun. Mm. Uh, so, so describe to us uh, uh, what one of these coloring books might look like. Uh, the coloring books don't look like what you remember as a kid. These have really beautiful paper, maybe 70-pound stock, which is quite thick. And uh, some of them, like the best-known one, Secret Garden, and uh, a second book by the same author, Johanna Basford, uh, called Enchanted Forest, they have... Um, they not only have the thick paper, but they have these beautiful covers... And they actually have a separate cover for the coloring book. Hmm. And the covers have gold flecks in them. Uh, they're just something meant to, that will stand out on your bookshelf, too, so that when you're finished coloring with them, you can put them on your bookshelf. You could even put them on the coffee table. They are 
often quite lovely and have intricate designs. Now, when I was, uh, the last time I did any coloring, I had these Dover books of uh, Celtic knotwork, and I would photocopy each page several times so I could color it a bunch of different ways. Uh, is, that, is that something that would work with these, or do you really need to do it on that lovely heavyweight paper? Um, I suppose you could, you could copy uh, if you wanted to. Actually, Dover has become one of the big publishers in this area, and a few years ago, they created a separate line called Creative Haven. And hmm. what they did is um, they put the illustrations so they were on a single side only. So you could actually, and they are on perforated pages. So mm. you can actually tear them out and um, work on it outside the book if you want. But also, you can just put it on your wall or your refrigerator. Sure, or frame it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, and there are. In case you wondered, yes, coloring parties. <laughs> of course. Yeah. yeah. Nothing goes better than rum and pretzels at Facebook <laughs> in California. It's had 35 people show up for their first coloring and cocktails party. This seems to be going hand-in-hand uh, hand with the growing number of uh, 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 kind of like art studios and wine places. You, I, I've noticed this in various towns that moms are getting together. At least I've heard uh, so far of, of only moms getting together to paint and to uh, drink some wine. And you do it in groups uh, for birthdays or just, just kind of like uh, nights out. And, and this seems to be kind of going hand in hand with that. I can see where the trends overlap, and I, and I really do think it's about getting away from that computer screen mm-hmm. and just enjoying doing something with your hands, um, making something. It, it is all that same impulse. So would you say um, that bookstores might be able to do this as a way of drawing people in, like holding coloring parties? You buy a copy of the book, you color some with a couple of other folks there, uh, take it home, everybody wins? I I definitely think that uh, bookstores are going to be doing that. Right now there's a lot of show and tell online with Facebook pages and Mm -hmm. Pinterest where you can see what people have been coloring lately. And I... I definitely see bookstores as having a big role. They're having a big role right now uh, based on sales. These books are are really moving. And um, I know I've mentioned her before, but uh, Johanna Basford and uh, Secret Garden has been just huge. And uh, just at the beginning of this month, Penguin Random House bought two new books from her and is planning a 400,000 copy first printing. Wow. The first one. Wow. So these are big selling titles. That, that's a lot of crayons. That's a lot of crayons <laughs> that are going to be needed for that. But it's, it's really fun. In fact, um, I spoke to uh, uh, an editor from Penguin, and uh, who is going to be working on the book. And they even have a little coloring group at Penguin, where people get together for lunch every few months and do coloring. That's delightful. I should see if if they can invite me over. (laughs) Sounds like (laughs) that sounds so much more relaxing than uh, just about anything else. (laughs) 
But but you're right when you make the comparison to knitting and knitting groups. I mean, it's, yes. you're following patterns, colors. You're doing something with your hands, um, and yeah, and it's four hundred thousand copies. So how did this? Who was the first one to bring it over from France? And who was the? Do we know who? Which books were published in France? And did they make uh, an immediate translation to uh, to the U.S.? Uh, well. After they did that first series, at um, it was actually published by Hachette in uh, 2012. Uh, Lawrence King, which is a an art best known for its art books, and a publish a small publisher in uh, the UK, which is distributed by Chronicle Books here, they sold rights to Secret Garden as co editions, mm-hmm. and. That book is now up to 1.5 million copies in print worldwide. Hmm. And that book came out in France, and it had uh, a note about it being anti-stress. And it did particularly well in France, and it's been doing particularly well more recently in the U.S. Publishers tell me that in the U.S., it was a little slow, slower starting, but right now it's exploding. It's the only way they can describe it. Mm. Just to keep up with the demand for Secret Garden, uh, Lawrence King is bringing in eight reprints this month and next, and it still it still will be a little bit behind on that book. And um, it's just it's very hard for publishers to keep up. I talked to somebody from. Sterling Publishing, mm-hmm. and they have a very popular animal book, and they said that um, in order to keep that particular book in print, they've had to um, to set up six different printings at four different uh, presses. Wow. <laughs> and the book is called Animal Kingdom, and they'll be mm. bringing out a second one in August called um, Tropical World. So what makes a coloring book a book for adults as opposed to a book for children? Well, these are more graphic, uh, you know, beautifully. They're they're much more intricate in design. And Mm. yes, I think if you have uh, a child who loves to color, I could see um, a mother, particularly a mother and daughter coloring together. But they're not like Dora the Explorer. Right. Images. Um, these are going to be much more detailed fantasy images, or um, Little Brown has has a, a book called Splendid Cities, which was put together by two next door neighbors actually, and they each have a very different but delightful style. And it, it there's a kind of whimsy in some of the mm. books. It's it's just a little more sophisticated that way. There are humor books that are more particularly adult titles, but these are, um, I I think it's just the level of detail in them that really makes them stand out. Yeah, I I just pulled up a couple of images um, because I was curious. I I hadn't heard of The Secret Garden particularly, and so just a quick search brings up some amazingly intricate pages and pages of little leaves and circles and a, a hedge maze. Um, it's, I mean, the, the line art by itself without the coloring is really very impressive. That's why I was saying I could actually see these as coffee table books where you might want to just even just flip through mm. 
um, Secret Garden is so popular that when I was sent a copy so that I could see it for myself, the person who sent it to me had to apologize because her sister started coloring a couple of pictures <laughs> that she couldn't resist. Wow. It just, it just has that wow. lore. It's kind of mesmerizing. There's a few beautiful butterflies in there, much more nicely done than I think I would have done. Yeah, you know, you could, you know, looking at these photos, I mean, you really could lose yourself in it. Um, yeah, they're they're quite detailed and quite lovely. There's one, um, and as I said, uh, people keep stressing me that they will help you with, um, you know, with so many of the stresses we have in modern life. Uh, there is one series that's been very popular from uh, Quarto Publishing Group, and it's actually written by an art therapist, and then the designs are by a graphic designer. It's Color Me Calm and Color Me Happy. Hmm. Well, that yeah. definitely sounds worth looking into for, for a little respite from harried lives. So the real question is, when is my health insurance going to cover this as, as an anti-anxiety right. therapy? <laughs> well, it's not only anti-anxiety, I should say. Um, some publishers have been telling me they've been getting letters from people with serious illnesses who mm. have found much respite from doing these. Um, cancer patients, people with post-traumatic stress disorder, um, and if you've ever visited somebody with memory difficulties, mm-hmm. many of the materials just aren't that great. And so publishers are now looking at what designs they could use to uh, create for some of these places as well. Uh, so people can have something fun and nice to work on. Well, it just, it sounds like such a such a lovely, soothing, calming trend. Uh, and I, I feel like that's generally been a thing recently that people are looking for antidotes to the the you know, nine to five that's become eight to seven, where you know, work eats your life and then you're frazzled all the rest of the time and, and really looking for ways to find peace, find calm. Uh, and this just sounds like a great way to do it. I think it is. One of my favorite descriptions of the patterns in one of the books I looked at, um, it was a, a secret cities, uh, secret uh, Paris book. There's mm. a little series of secret Paris, secret Tokyo, secret New York, and um, the publisher described it as Zentangle. Mm-hmm. The Zentangle patterns. I think it does, there is almost a spiritual nature to some of these. And, yeah. Uh, Harper One, which is known for its spirituality titles, is actually going to start publishing a couple books in a series they're calling Coloring Books for the Soul. So hmm. they're wow. really trying to make that statement and that connection that yep. you're talking about, Rose, that we kind of need that for our mental well-being. Well, I got to say, when uh, when Mark said, all right, Judith is going to talk to us about coloring books for grownups, I said, really? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and now I'm completely won over. This is this is way more than anything I had imagined. This is pretty incredible. Uh, I have to say that the first editor who brought adult coloring books to my attention got so excited as I sent back information that uh, she requested samples of all the books that I have <laughs> that I don't want to color in myself. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I expect you're keeping most of them. 
Secret Garden is definitely on my desk, <laughs> even if a couple of those butterflies are already colored in. <laughs> Great. Well, Judith, thank you so much for introducing us to this uh, kind of spectacular new trend. I, I will definitely keep an eye on this. Okay, thank you. It's always great to have you on the show. And now a final word from our sponsors. Hi, I'm Sarah Fort, author of Sorry Kitchen, Bowl and Spoon, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for an interview with Naomi Novik, author of Uprooted, and we'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can find this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio on our website at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio, and also on iHeartRadio and iTunes, available for you to listen absolutely free. So check the site every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 